0: Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in Chapter 3 of Revelation, ending the letter to the Church of Laodicea, finishing our study on the letters to the seven churches. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word.
1: And Jesus is trying to get to this church, and he's telling them, hey, stop. This is still reversible, but you need to do this sooner than later. You need to stop. Listen, when Jesus intervenes, it's always that crossroads. It's always at those crossroads. Maybe you've experienced that in your life where you just know the Lord has intervened. He's given you a wake-up call to something. But it's a crossroads. It's a fork. And what he's saying to you is, I'm not going to force you to go this way. But if you don't go this way, here's what's going to happen. And understand, you'll begin to move down this road. And guess what? Those two roads begin to diverge further and further over time. And therein becomes the danger. Listen, the solution to the Laodicean issue for this church for us in our lives is still found in Jesus. It was in Jesus, it has been in Jesus, and it will continue to be in Jesus. He has everything that we need to, to free us from this kind of dilemma when it creeps into our hearts. He possesses it all, he offers it all to us, but we must be willing to let go of the things that we've made so important in our lives. We need to be willing to let go and to willingly turn and, and, and turn to him. Not just turn to spiritual things, but to turn to him. Look, my message to you this morning is if you've got Laodicea going on, yeah, I want you to go read your Bibles. Absolutely. Yeah, I want you to be in fellowship here in church. Absolutely. But you know what? That's not the message. Because you can do all those things and still be living Laodicea. The call is to turn back to Jesus. To turn to him and to say, I submit. Isn't that the hardest word? We hate it. It is the dirtiest word in our vocabulary for most people. I submit. Most of us think it's kind of like being back in high school when they were teaching you how to wrestle. And if the girls did that, I don't know. But I know they made the guys do that. And I was always the one that got thrown on the mat and somebody would grab me and pull my arm behind me. It's like, uncle, uncle, uncle. And so we think of that when we hear that word submit. And to some degree for us as human beings, it does feel that way. That, you know what? Oh, yeah, okay, Lord, okay. But it doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be. What does he say? If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And my commands are what? They're not burdensome. They're not burdensome. They're not going to make you scream, uncle. We need to let go. And we need to recognize our real need and be willing to turn to him to buy what he alone possesses that will meet our need, what he has for us. Now, When Jesus says, buy from me, those words, buy from me in your Bibles, he's not saying that there's something that you have to do to purchase those things from him. Some people misinterpret that and make it about that. He's not saying that at all. We know that because everything Christ offers to us is offered apart from any action on our part other than we receive it by what? Faith. And faith is not a work, despite what somebody would tell you. Faith is not a work. Faith is to believe. We don't earn anything from Jesus through our good works, through our self-effort. And to suggest such a requirement would be to contradict God's word given to us in scripture about these things. But the implication of buying from him is simply that we would put our effort in seeking these things he offers us instead of putting it in accumulating the other stuff that we're accumulating to our lives. As one commentator said it, all this self-sufficiency must be expended in the labor of getting from me, Jesus, getting from Jesus, these absolute necessities. That's what the price is that we pay, that we would turn from our own self-sufficiency, from our own self-dependency, and set our hearts to diligently seek the things that Jesus possesses and offers to us. Lord I want all that you have. I want all that you have. May that be our hearts. Lord, I want all that you have for me. We sing that song time sometimes, right? Don't let my heart go cold, right? Jesus, I seek all that you have for me. But again, don't delay Don't delay in seeking those things from because the longer we look to these other things, the greater our poverty, the greater our nakedness, the greater our blindness becomes. And we might find that we will reach a point of point of lukewarmness where a reverse becomes really hard for us again, not because Jesus can't reverse it, but because of our own hearts that have become so entrenched that we no longer are open to the change that he could bring to us. Amen. Well, let's look on and see what else he tells us. Let's go back to our verse. It says in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Wow, I know we've alluded to this one all the way through, but let's just unpack this just a little bit. When when Jesus is saying this, be zealous, Jesus is saying, you know what he's saying here? He's saying, therefore, because of the love that I have for you, Therefore, because of the love that I have for you, because you know my heart of love and my desire for you, be zealous and repent. Because of what I've done, because of my view towards you, because of what I've done for you, because of these things, be zealous and repent. Be zealous. It literally means become hot. Become hot. Remember, he's talking to church that's lukewarm. He's here saying, become hot. Stop being in the middle of the road. Become hot for me. Jesus is saying, repent and turn away from you lukewarmness and become hot again. In essence, he's saying, turn away from these wrong things and turn back to me and allow me to make you hot again. Why? Because now you know how much I love you. You know, I got to tell you, as, as if I've ever seen a congregation of Laodiceans reading this, and I think to myself, after all the criticisms, he really does love me. Because if he didn't, he'd say nothing. He'd just wipe me away. You know, remove me. But he's warning me because he loves me. This is a hard message. It's a hard message to them. It's a hard message to us, no matter how we look at it. But this is Jesus's heart behind it all. This is why he's saying it. Jesus is saying, I'm confronting you like this because I love you. I love you. I'm confronting you like this because you belong to me. And as mine, I don't want you to do something that's going to injure you. Based on the word choice Jesus is using in the Greek, he's literally saying, even though I rebuke you and chasten you, I am still your friend. I love you deeply as my friend. Wow. I think about that. No illustrations on my children by name this morning, okay? But I think back to the days when I was raising my kids and when I would rebuke them over something... Or, or chastise them over something. I didn't do it because I was mad at them. I didn't do it because they just torqued me off. I did it because I loved them, and I knew that if I failed to do that, they wouldn't learn something they need to learn, and they would get hurt because of it. I wanted to tell them the hard things because I cared. And that's what Jesus is doing with you and me. I mean, you guys know Hebrews 12, 7 and 8. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8 says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Hey, rebuke me, Lord, (laughs) because it convinces me that I'm yours. It tells me that you love me that you would stop me in my tracks and say, hey, knock it off. Knock it off. This is not for you. Hmm. This is Jesus' heart behind this challenging rebuke. And it's it's what should motivate us to repent too. Not the rebuke, the love. That's the point I want you to see. The, 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 The repent isn't because I've rebuked you. The repent is because I love you. That's why he's asking them to respond. We don't repent you know, the truth is we don't repent because somebody guilted us into it. Not really. You know, we don't repent because we're afraid of being even vomited out of Jesus's mouth. Although that's certainly a fear that he clearly communicated to them an issue, but we repent because we know and understand Jesus's deep love for us. And we realize how much our sinful condition is hurting him. You see, he's on that cross. He went to that cross to die for our sins, even now, even now. I don't know if it works out, but I often say, you know, when I think about that, the easiest way for me to understand is that my sin just kind of transcends time and flies back to the cross, boom, and it impacts him. And yet he doesn't say, I give up on you. He knows full well it's coming back into those nails. And he says, I love you, and because I love you, stop it, (laughs) stop. You can because I'll enable you if you'll look to me. I'll enable you. I died to enable you to live a life that's hot for me. That's, I got to tell you, I don't know what other motivation we could possibly ever want or need. It's right there. Then he says in verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Hmm. we know this verse, right? We use this verse. We often refer to this verse as the great invitation, right? We use it a lot of times, and I will argue with you this morning, we use it inappropriately. doesn't mean it doesn't have application. But the primary application here isn't the one we use it for. How many of you guys, don't raise your hands, how many of you guys have quoted this verse when you've been witnessing to somebody? Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking and there's no door handle on the outside, but you have it on the inside so you can open. He won't force his way in. It's, it's truly an application, and I'm not telling you not to do that, but I am saying that's not the context. The context is not the unbeliever. Who's the context? The believers. He's talking to this church in Laodicea. He's talking to them. It's this invitation being made to believers in this church in Laodicea that had turned him away in their lives and in their church. It's a statement whereby Jesus is declaring his desire to have a deep and intimate relationship with them. That's what dining is all about. When he says, I'll come in and I'll, some of your translations say, I'll come in and sup with you. I'll come in and dine with you. Some of the modern translations say, well, I'll have a Big Mac with you, you know, whatever your translation. But the idea of dining, of eating together is all about fellowship, It's all about fellowship with one another. Sharing a dinner was a big deal in the culture of that day. Meals were shared with closest friends because consuming a meal together was considered to be an act of unity. You know why? Because we each tear from that same loaf of bread or we all eat from that same bowl. And we're both ingesting the same thing that's coming from that place and it's unifying us. Because we're all sharing in it together. Shared food was was viewed as unifying participants together in a very intimate way and fellowship. And this is the deep relationship that Jesus is expressing that he wants to have with the Laodicean believers and with us. But the problem with the Laodicean believers is that they pushed him out. They shoved him out the door. That's why he's standing at the door. He's not inside. You know, he's outside. If you were inside, he'd probably be trying to get back out with some of the stuff they were doing, you know? He's standing outside the door trying to get in. The idea being conveyed is that he's literally standing outside of their lives and outside of their fellowship looking in. He has to knock, hoping that they're going to open that door and allow him back in once again so that he can fellowship with them as he desires to fellowship. Sometimes that can be the way it is in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus never leaves us. He promises that. I will never leave you or forsake you. He never leaves us. But you know what? It doesn't mean that we can't push him outside the door where he's standing outside the door of our lives. What are you doing? Let me in. Let me in. I used to play a game sometimes with people when they're at my house, they'll go outside to get something. I'll shut the door and lock it. And they're outside and knock on the door, ring the doorbell. It's like, who is it? I don't know you. You know, can't come in. Come on, I got all my stuff in the house. You can't come back in. You know, but that's what we do with Jesus. We shut him outside the door of our lives because of the stuff we're pursuing, the stuff we're going after, the things that we're making important in our lives, listen, Jesus will share us with nothing. The truth is when we begin to focus on something that's contrary to him, it pushes him outside that door. He doesn't share it and say, oh, that's cool. You know, I'll just hang in here while you go ahead and chase after what it is you're chasing after. He, we push him outside the door and he puts himself, we put him in that position where he's knocking, but he does knock. That's to never leave you or forsake you. He continues to knock saying, let me in. Let me back in. I love you. Let me back in. <laughs> but the mystery of it all is that Jesus never forces himself through that door. He doesn't kick the door open. He doesn't get a battering ram and push it open. He just quietly knocks, quietly knocks, saying, let me in. Hmm. Doesn't force it open, but he longingly, longingly waits for us to open it once again. He stands at the door like the lover in the Song of Solomon. Here's what it says in Song of Solomon, chapter five and verse two. Song of Solomon, 5:2. I sleep but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. What a beautiful picture. Jesus is saying, I'm knocking. I love you. Let me in. I love you so much. Let me back in. He stands and he knocks. His, his knock is his wooing us, and with his love and his mercy and with his compassion, even with his rebuke. But ultimately, he waits for you and me to open the door and the key to opening the door is to hear his voice because he says that right hear my voice and open the door hear my voice and when we give attention to what jesus is saying to us we begin to move towards that door when we start to attune our ears of our spirit of our heart back to him again we will be drawn back to that door and when we heed his voice when we repent when we yield to him that's when we open the door wide open that's when we yield it wide open you see And that's what he promises. He he promises that he will come in and he's going to enter into that intimate fellowship dinner with us once again. Intimate fellowship that we enjoyed with him before we forced him out the door by our sinful attitudes. And as fellowship is restored, guess what? Lukewarmness is replaced with heat once again. Because he'll begin to stoke those fires. You can't help but to have zeal when you're dining with the Lord like this. I mean, look at the disciples you never see once where it's kind of like they're hanging out with Jesus and it's like, oh, I don't want to be around this guy much longer. You know, I'm kind of bored. They were excited all of the time. Being in his very presence just stirred their hearts and it was like, Lord, tell us what we should do. I will never forsake. Yes, yeah, so it was fleshy, right? I will never forsake. But the zeal that was behind those statements that they made, but why was the zeal there? Because they were fellowshipping with the Lord of the universe. And even though they didn't fully understand that they knew it they knew it where it mattered. And you and I will find the zeal, we'll find the heat again when we repent, when we turn back, when we let him walk back through the door once again. If you're struggling with a lack of zeal in your life, maybe you should look to see if Jesus is at the table with you or if you've pushed him outside because of other stuff. Now look, maybe you've been there before and you've opened the door of repentance and and you've done that and then you are back out into a cold state again and you're feeling like, well, he ain't coming in. I did it once before I opened it, but then I betrayed him again and he's never going to come through that door again if I open it. Listen, that's the enemy lying to you (laughs) because the scriptures say what? If you confess your sins, if you repent, essentially, I'm faithful and just, he says forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you of your iniquity. The scriptures are replete with these kinds of statements. When when, when Jesus is talking to disciples about forgiving 70 times 7, who do you think he's really talking about? It's a characteristic of himself. 70 times 7, ad infinitum, I will forgive. Do not let the enemy keep you from opening the door of your heart once again to Jesus. Because he will walk right back in and he will pick up that fellowship with you right where it left off. Don't have to start over again with the soup or the salad. He's going to sit down and fellowship meal with you once again. Amen? Let's wrap this up. He then says in verse 21, To him overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. To him overcomes. This is Jesus' promises to overcomers, right? We've talked about that before. This is Jesus' promise to overcomers. The fact that he makes this statement to the Laodiceans tells us that restoration is possible for any erring Christian. That's the good news in this. No one is beyond hope. Overcoming is a possibility for all of us, no matter what spiritual state we might find ourselves in. As I said before, it's never an issue of can he reverse it. He will reverse it. The issue becomes will we get to a point where we will let him reverse it. That's a total issue in and of itself. But you know what? From his perspective, his promise is, hey, overcome. Overcome. I'll I'll restore. We'll be in fellowship. All the things that were promised are still yours. They're still there. He says, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. That's an especially significant reward concerning the problems that Jesus is dealing with in this church. This was a church marked by spiritual lethargy and compromise and spiritual self-reliance. And yet to this troubled church, Jesus promises them a place of unique and special honor. If they repent, if they overcome, if they repent of the things that they're doing, he promises to seat them with him on his throne. All I can say to that is, wow, wow. Here again, we find great hope and encouragement for you and me. Clark said in his commentary, this is the worst of the seven churches, and yet the most eminent of all the promises are made to it showing that the worst may repent, finally conquer and attain even to the highest state of glory. You will never fall so far that you are outside of Jesus' reach. Know that. Never so far that you're outside of his love. Never so far that you're outside of his ability to restore you. You choose. You choose. But as for me, when I fail... I know where I go running back to. I go running back to the feet of my father. I throw myself down on his mercy in a heartbeat. And I say, I am so sorry. Forgive me. I am a sinful man. Forgive me. And then I get up and I wash my face. And I walk on in fellowship with Jesus. We can all do that. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. And finally, he says in verse 22, as he always does. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Open your ears, but more than that, open your heart. That's the implication. The implication is anyone who has an ear. In other words, we're all to hear. We're all ultimately to heed what Jesus has said, because the truth is we all have some Laodicea going on in our lives. We all do. But he loves us and he's made a way for us. If only we will hear and yield to him. Amen. And so we conclude after 15 weeks. (laughs) I told you we're going to finish this book faster than last time. No. We conclude after 15 weeks, the seven letters to the seven churches. Next week on Resurrection Sunday, we're gonna begin making our turn into chapter four. And I think you're gonna find this very fascinating. I think it's an absolutely appropriate message for Resurrection Sunday, what Jesus is about to say to them. And there's some really awesome things to be noted in there. So read ahead, let's come back together and let's worship the Lord next week as we do that. But in the meantime, let's reflect on these seven churches. Let's think about the things he said to them all and all the churches that we would strive to be. I pray that you and I will strive to be like the church of Philadelphia. One may be of little strength, but one in which, you know what? The Lord's going to open a door that no man can close. And when that door closes, it's a door that no man can open, but he will honor that church.